ahead and dismiss our children this morning to kids' church. <laughs> like a holy terror. I want to begin this morning uh, with a disclaimer. Uh, I didn't write the text. <laughs> I just preach about it. Uh, this, is a, this is a difficult passage uh, to preach through. Uh, there is, there's nothing rosy about this. There's nothing fun about this. Uh, we're going to be dealing with the ugly truth of humanity. And so we're going to be looking... Uh, at some topics this morning uh, that are difficult. They're not palatable. This is not a PG sermon. Uh, we're going to be talking about rape. We're going to be talking about incest. Uh, I didn't, again, I didn't write this. Uh, Charles Stanley said, Spirit-anointed pre- preaching compromises no truth, it avoids no subject, and it fears no reaction. And so I want to encourage you this morning, uh, one of the reasons that I preach the way that I do is intentional. I walk through the text, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, because it forces me as a pastor to tackle and deal with issues that make me uncomfortable. No pastor, I can promise you this, no pastor stands up in the pulpit and says, you know what, today I want to preach about incest. That's, that, that's a topic that God's really laid upon my heart. That is not how any pastor uh, uh, stands up here and, and says, you know what, I'll, I'm going to choose to talk about 1 Samuel 12, and I'm sorry, 2 Samuel 12, and talk about incest, uh, talk about rape, and talk about all of that. That is, that is not how any pastor approaches this topic. But it's in the text. And we would not be giving heed to the whole counsel of God's Word were we to avoid passages in Scripture that make us uncomfortable. So, there's my disclaimer. 2 Samuel chapter 13. This is a very lengthy passage. I'm not going to read all of it. I'm going to read a good bit of it. Uh, I'm going to hit the highlights and then I'm going to to back up and, and unpack it as best as I can, and do my very best to rightly divide God's Word this morning. Now it was after this that Absalom, the son of David, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And Amnon, the son of David, loved her. And Amnon was so frustrated because of his sister Tamar that he made himself ill. For she was a virgin, and it seemed hard to Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shammai, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very shrewd man. And he said to him, O son of the king, why are you so depressed morning after morning? Will you not tell me? And then Amnon said to him, I am in love with Tamar, the sister of my brother Absalom. And Jonadab Then said to him, Lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. When your father comes to see you, say to him, Please let my sister Tamar come and give me some food to eat. And let her prepare the food in my sight, that I may see it and eat from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. When the king came to him, Amnon said to the king, Please let my sister Tamar come 
Make me a couple of cakes on my side that I may eat from her hand. And David sent to the house of Tamar, saying, Go now, your brother Amnon's house, and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house, and she was lying down. While he was lying down, she took dough and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. She took the pan and dished them out before him, but he refused to eat. And Amnon said, Have everyone go out from me. So everyone out, went out from him. And Amnon said to Tamar, Bring the food into the bedroom that I may eat from your hand. So Tamar took the cakes which she had made, brought them into the bedroom to her brother Amnon. When she brought them to him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, Come lie with me, my sister. But she answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me. For such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this disgraceful thing. As for me, where could I get rid of my reproach? And as for you, you will be like one of these fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. However, he will not listen to her since he was stronger than she. He violated her and lay with her. And then Amnon hated her with a very great hatred, for the hatred with with which he hated her was greater than the love which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, Get up, go away. She said to him, No, because this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you have done to me. Yet he would not listen to her. Then he called his young man who attended him. said, Now though this woman out of my presence locked the door behind her, she had gone, she had on a long-sleeved garment, for in this manner the virgin daughter of the king dressed themselves in robes. And then his attendants took her out and locked the door behind him. And Tamar put ashes on her head and tore her long-sleeved garment, which was on her head. And she put her hand on her head and went away crying aloud as she went. Then Absalom, her brother, said to her, Has Amnon, your brother, been with you? But now keep silent, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this matter to heart. So Tamar remained and was desolate in her brother Absalom's house. Verse 21, Now when King David heard all of these matters, he was very angry. Skip down to verse 28. Absalom knows what's going on several years later. Verse 28, Absalom commanded his servant, saying, See now when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, when I say to you, strike Amnon, then put him to death. Do not fear. Have not I myself commanded you, be courageous and valiant? And the servants of Absalom did to Amnon, just as Absalom had commanded. And all the king's son arose, each mounted his mule and fled. While they were on the way, the report came to David, saying, Absalom struck down all the king's son, and not one of them is left. Skip down to verse 33. Now therefore do not let the Lord of the king take report to heart. Namely, all the king's son are dead, for only Amnon is dead. Let's pray. God, as we read this text, Lord, may we be grieved over the sin of Amnon, Absalom, David. May we hate sin. May we view sin in the same manner that you do. Father, may you speak to our hearts. May you bring about conviction in our lives. And may you show us the remedy of our sin through the shed blood of Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.
Well, as I've said many times before, there are passages in Scripture that are prescriptive. This is how we ought to live. There are passages in Scripture that are descriptive. This is not a prescriptive passage. This is a descriptive passage. This is what happened. The Bible is full of very gruesome, very heinous, very ugly passages. We just got done looking at the the, the story and the narrative of David and Bathsheba where David stays home from battle, goes up on the roof of his house, sees a woman, lusts after her, calls her to himself, even though he knows she's married, lies with her, has her husband killed, tries to cover everything up. We've seen the, the, the heinous acts. We even see the father of, of Israel, the, the father of Judaism, the father of Christianity, Abraham, and the story of Abraham and Sarah. And we see how God, and in His great grace, He's called Abram out of the land of the Chaldeans. And He said, I will make a great nation out of you. I will make a great name for you. And we see God establishing His covenant with Abraham. And through the covenant of Abraham, all the people of God will experience redemption and grace and mercy. And who is Abraham? Abraham is a, is a man who loved his wife. And as soon as he is confronted by Pharaoh, gives his wife to Pharaoh. It says, yeah, she's not my wife. She's my sister. You can have her. Lies. And then whenever, whenever God was slow about bringing his promise, Abraham, as the custom would, he goes and he sleeps with his, maid, with his wife's maidservant, Hagar, and they conceive and give birth to a child. These are, these are horrific acts, heinous acts. We see the story of Judah in Genesis chapter 39. He rapes his daughter-in-law. We see the story here. 2 Samuel chapter 12. Rape and incest. We see the story in Genesis with Lot and his daughters. All through Scripture we see just disgusting, heinous acts of sin. We see the Apostle Paul, the founder of the New Testament church, the author of over half of the New Testament, A murderer, persecuting the church, killing Christians, seeking out to destroy the work of God. Heinous, brutal acts. But what this tells us about Scripture is that, you know what? The Bible is not afraid of truth. It speaks of even the ugliness of humanity. It doesn't sugarcoat it. It doesn't try and encapsulate Christianity in this nice, candy-coated, palatable capsule. It shows us all of humanity. And says, but by the grace of God, there go I. The reality is, There's a certain credibility that comes with raw truth. I had the opportunity oftentimes to counsel husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, teenagers. I had the opportunity to provide mediocre counsel at best. But I can always tell early on in the counseling session, the counseling opportunity, 
if there's going to be true healing when I see the level of honesty and disclosure. When a husband walks in and a wife walks in and, and they, they try and give me a, a very palatable circumstance of why their marriage is struggling and they step in and they say, my wife and I are having a hard time communicating. And I find out about 30 minutes in that the hard time communicating is the fact that he's been having an affair and he didn't tell her about it. Well, you know, having a hard time communicating and, and lying about an extramarital relationship are not the same things. When I have a husband and wife who walks in and says, you know, our marriage is, we are this close to divorce. I've neglected my wife. She's neglected you know, her husband. They, they, and, and, and they expose all of the, the, the warts and they, they, they rip off the band-aid and they say, Preacher, we need help. We need Jesus. We need the grace of God in our marriage or, 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 or we are ruined. There's a certain credibility to the raw, unadulterated truth. And Scripture gives us the raw, unadulterated truth. I want us to see in this passage sin for what it is. It's abhorrent. We look at this passage and it's easy for us to see, oh, oh that is just heinous. That is, you know, here was, a, here was a, a brother who looked at his wife and saw that she was attractive and saw that, that she was of marriable age and saw that, that she was, was a virgin and, and lusted after her and manipulated and called her into his bedchamber and, and, and kicked everybody else out and grabbed her and forcibly made her to lie with him. And then as she is begging him not to, he says, I don't care what you say, I'm going to do it anyway. And then after he had violated her, she says, don't send me away. At least make me an honest woman. At least marry me. At least, at least protect me. At least provide for me. And he kicks her out. We see that and it's easy for us to look at this and say, that is horrible. How could anyone do that? But then we look at our own lives. And we look through rose-colored glasses and we're not able to see our own actions as equally deplorable. Now maybe you, not have, maybe you have not committed incest, maybe you, not have, committed, you have not committed rape or, or murder, but I can guarantee you that your heart is just as vile and it's just as wicked. I want us to listen to the language in this text. Look at verse 15. Chapter 13, verse 15. Then Amnon hated her with a very great hatred, for the hatred which he hated her was greater than the love which he loved her. And Amnon said to her, Get up, go away. Two Hebrew words uses no personal pronouns, but rather uses an impersonal pronoun, this or it. 
What he actually says in verse 15 is get this thing, get it away. Once he has satisfied the lust of his flesh, once his hormones have been satisfied, once his his fleshly desires have been appeased, he sees her and views her as rubbish, as trash, as something used, something to discard. Get this away from me. I want us to see the heinousness and the brutality in the language. And when she is unwilling to leave, he calls in his servant and tells him, get this thing, get it away from me. I'm done with this. Doesn't even say get her away from me. Get my sister away from me. Get it, get this thing away from me. Our sin is just as deplorable. And we must see it as such. One of the things that I believe is most encouraging about the gospel is it takes men like Amnon, like David, like Paul, and it provides an opportunity for redemption. But I want us to be careful that we don't hear the testimony of God's redemption and God's, God's, the gospel and and God's taking that which is broken and making it beautiful. And we don't exonerate and we don't highlight sin. It's easy to hear a testimony of someone who has been radically transformed by the gospel and they'll spend 30 minutes telling you about about where they were and how they were an addict and how they were were in the gutter and how they were you know uh, they were a womanizer or they were this and they were that and they spend 30 minutes telling you all of the sin and all of the the wicked things that they've done and they spend 5 minutes telling you about how Jesus changed their life You know, anytime there's a natural disaster, there's a problem with sightseers. We've all experienced it. Many of us have experienced it firsthand. Back in 2016, our homes were flooded. And and every time somebody would drive down a flooded street, what would it do? It would send waves into your house. And so your, your home is already wa- has water in it. And every time these, these sightseers are driving by, what are they doing? But they're sending waves and waves of flood water deeper into your house and they're causing more and more damage. But, but there, is a, there is an intrinsic humanity that, that uh, there's something that is intrinsic with humanity that, that we're curious. We want to see destruction. We want to see devastation. We want to hear about it. We want to know about it. Why do you think the news only reports that which is disgusting and that which is devastating and that which is deplorable? Because it sells. Because we are, by nature, curious. We want to see other people's misery, other people's destruction. They don't talk about, the news doesn't report all of the great things that are happening in the in 
in and through the churches. You will never hear, as the coverage is coming in about Hurricane Florence, you won't see the stories about how there are thousands and thousands and thousands of people that are flooding the Carolinas and helping them rebuild and how many people are are, are giving aid. What you'll see is you will see the news reported and you will see people who are drowning and people whose homes are destroyed and, and you'll, you'll hear about corruption in the government and how the, the aid is not getting where it needs to be. That's what's going to be reported because we are drawn to the destruction and to the misery. And as we read this text, there's a little bit of us that's captivated by the heinousness. And that ought to disgust us. We should be grieved over our sin. Amos says this, chapter 5, verse 15. He says, hate evil. Love good, establish justice in the gate. And perhaps the Lord God of hosts may be gracious to the remnant of Jacob. In Romans chapter 12, the Apostle Paul writes this. Romans chapter 12, verse 9. He says, Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Hate, abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. David, father of Tamar, writes this in Psalm 97, verse 9 and 10. He says, For thou art the Lord, the most high over all the earth. Thou art exalted far above all gods. Hate evil, you who love the Lord. We must see sin for what it is. It is deplorable, destructive. And I want to point out that sin never affects one person, ever. Whether it is a sin that is in secret or whether it is a sin that is in public, sin never affects only you. It always affects a multitude of those around you. Always. As we read this text, we ought to be grieved as we look at Tamar, as we look at what's happened to her. But there was something that grieved me even greater as I read this text. I want us to look at verse 21. So we read this text. We see what happened to Tamar. We see how she, she begged her brother not to do it, how he, he raped her, he, he forced himself upon her, and then he kicked her out of his bedchamber. And then we see she goes and she seeks solace in her brother, and her brother says, I'll take care of this. And we see two years later, he does. But there's something that grieved me even more than the act itself. As I read this text, look at verse 21. Now King David, the covenant king, the king who is supposed to protect his people, the king who is, who is supposed to protect his daughter, 
King David heard of all these matters, and he became very angry. What's missing? What's missing? He didn't do anything. He just got mad. He did not do anything. This is the covenant king. Apart from that, this is Tamar's dad. I have one little girl. I don't know how many kids David had. He had a bunch of wives. He had a bunch of kids. I don't know how many daughters he had. I have one little girl. I can promise you now, if something like this happens to my little girl, y'all are going to have to find a new preacher. I'm just letting you know. Y'all are going to have to find a new preacher and, and I'll, I'll pastor a new flock in Angola because I'm going to jail. And I'm okay with that. But there is never going to be a day whenever something like this happens to my daughter and I don't do anything about it. I may be completely in the wrong, but David did nothing. And I began asking myself, why? Why is David almost complicit at this? And as I began studying and I began reading, I believe that I, I believe that I have, I have an opinion. And I believe that I understand why David didn't. David saw the sin of Amnon very similar to his own sin. And I believe that David was paralyzed by his past and his own hypocrisy. And said, how can I bring about justice and judgment to Amnon when I'm guilty of the very same it may not be incest. It may not have been forcible. But was not David just as guilty as Amnon? As I began wrestling with this, I began wrestling with the hypocrisy in my own life. What's the biggest, the biggest complaint about the church from those outside the church. Isn't it hypocrisy? <clears throat> it's interesting. Uh, Mark Dever, uh, one of my favorite authors, he's probably the leading, uh, leading author, the leading uh, thinker when it comes to uh, the history and the study of the church in the world today. And talking about the church... Uh, he said, you know, we're always, when you invite someone to church, one of the biggest arguments is that the church is full of hypocrites. He said, and my response is always the same. He said, you're absolutely right. We are a church. We are a people full of hypocrisy and full of hypocrites. And there's always room for one more. Because if we're honest, if we're honest, are we not all hypocrites? Do we not all, and, and one of the hardest things, one of the hardest things in raising your own children is you're telling your kids not to do the very same things that what? That you did. 
And, and you know, we get in this, this discussion and this, uh, this uh, engagement with our children as we're correcting them and as we're, as we're you know, trying to parent them. And it always comes back to us, but mom, whenever you were my age, you did this. How come I can't do this? And, and you've, you've heard me quote Charles Spurgeon. It says, train up a child in the way that he should go and go that way yourself. And yes, that is how we should live. But the reality is, is that we're liars, we're cheats, we're thieves. And we do do things that we shouldn't do. We tell our children how to live and then we live differently. Here was David's conundrum. David was a murderer. David was an adulterer. David was a liar. David said, I, I, I can't punish my son for the very same sin which I'm guilty of. And I want us to hear what God's Word tells us. I believe David was paralyzed by his own sin and he was unable to exercise justice for his daughter. We must allow the grace of God to set us free from our sin that we may be able to exercise justice and demonstrate grace to others. Micah 6.8 says this. It says, He has told you, Lord, He has told you, O man, what, the, what is good and what does the Lord require you to love, to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. There is a requirement to do what is right, to do what is just, to be merciful, to be compassionate, to be gracious, and to walk humbly with our God. Does that mean that we are perfect? No. But we cannot allow the sin of our past to paralyze us and keep us from doing that which is right. Have we failed as parents? Yes. Have we failed as human beings? Yes. Does that mean that we do not have the credibility and the authority to train and teach our children how to do what's right? No. Just because we have failed, that does not disqualify us from parenting. Just because you have made mistakes, that does not disqualify you from doing what is right from this point forward. We must allow the grace of God to free us in order to live for God today. We cannot allow the sin of our past to paralyze us and keep us from doing what is right from this point forward. I want to point out to you in this text... There's something that is glaringly absent. There's no mention anywhere in this text of the covenant God. God is absent. And we see this, we see a very similar pattern in the in, in chapter 10, whenever we see the story of David and Bathsheba. But the very last chapter, I'm sorry, the very last verse of chapter 10, we see God show up and we see David did what was wrong or David did what was evil in the sight of God. That's the very first time in that whole chapter we see the covenant God show up whenever it says that David did what was evil in the sight of God. In this chapter, we don't even see that. The covenant God is completely absent. Now, I don't want us to misinterpret that. That does not mean, that does not mean that the covenant of God is passive or that the covenant God is ignorant or that the covenant of God is, is unconcerned with what's going on. Proverbs chapter 15, verse 3 
Solomon, the son of David, writes this. In Proverbs chapter 15, he said, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, watching the evil and the good. In the book of Ecclesiastes, also written by Solomon, verse 12, I'm sorry, chapter 12, verse 14. It says, well, God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether good or evil. Make no mistake about it, just because the covenant God is absent from the text does not mean that He is absent. We serve a God who is omniscient. We serve a God who is omnipresent. What that means is that God knows all, and God is everywhere at all times. That means when you are all by yourself, you are never alone. That means that those things that you think, those things that you do, those things that you say, that you tell no one else, the Lord not only knows, but He is abiding with you As you think them, as you say them, as you do them. Do you hate your sin? Most of us will give lip service to the hatred of sin. But then what we do in our reality is we take our secret sin, we put it in a little shoebox, and we stick it up in the top of our closet where we think no one else will ever know about it. And whenever we want it, we go to our shoebox when we're alone, when we think no one else is looking, and we pull our shoebox out and we indulge in our secret sin. Make no mistake about it. Numbers tells us your sin will find you out. It may not be today. It may not be tomorrow. It may not be in this lifetime. But make no mistake about it. Your sin will will find you out. The ugly truth is that our heart is just as wicked as the heart of Amnon. And you say, preacher, I have never committed rape. I have never committed incest. I have never done some of the deplorable things that we read in the text in the, in, in the Old Testament or even the New Testament. I am not like those people. Oh, but you are. Jeremiah says the heart is beyond all things. The heart is deceitfully wicked. It's deplorable. The ugly truth is that our heart is just as wicked as Amnon's. And yet in our pride, we say, I would never. Yet many times we already have. Even though Our heart is just as wicked as that of Amnon. The truth of the gospel, Romans chapter 5, verse 8. God demonstrated His great love for us in that while we were sinners, while we were rapists, adulterers, murderers, 
Jesus died for us. If nothing else, that ought to humble us. If nothing else, it ought to bring us to the place where we see our great need for a Savior. Because left unto our own devices, we would stand before a holy God guilty. Now, you may not be a rapist. In fact, I'm quite certain that the vast majority of you aren't. You may not be guilty of incest. But if we look into the deep caverns of our heart, we see the selfishness, we see the pride, we see how easily we seek to fulfill the desires of our own heart rather than to obey God. And to a holy God, whether it is a little white lie or whether it is rape and incest, sin is sin. And it is deplorable and we should hate it and loathe it. But the reality is is that we hold on to it. We cling to it. And God is calling us this morning to run to the cross. Because it is only at the cross where we find freedom from our bondage. It is only at the cross where we find freedom from our sin. Jesus looked down at the very people who had betrayed Him, the very people who had nailed Him to the cross, the very people who had put a crown of thorns upon His head and beat Him incomprehensible, the very people who were killing Him and said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. There's a difference between those and us. We know what we're doing. And God loves us and gives us grace anyway. This morning, as you see the reality of our sin, may you see the reality of God's grace and God's love that much clearer. And if you're out there this morning and you've never trusted Jesus, or you've been a church member, you've even taught vacation Bible school, you've even been baptized, but this morning, God has revealed to you that today, you need to quit. Quit trying to, quit trying to be a Christian and just trust Jesus. Maybe God is calling you this morning to a deeper hatred of sin. Whatever it is the Holy Spirit is speaking to your heart, may we go into this time of invitation and allow the Holy Spirit to reign in our lives. Let's pray. God, the ugly truth of this text is is nothing short of disgusting, deplorable. But God, may we see in your text our own sin, our own pride, our own anger, our own selfish desires. If you're out there this morning and God is speaking to your heart and God is calling you to give your life to Jesus, I want to invite you to come. During the song of invitation, I want to invite you to come and trust in the shed blood of Jesus that paid for your sin, that washes you from all your iniquity. 
Maybe this morning God has just called you to hate your sin as much as He hates your sin. Maybe God has called you this morning to confess. Maybe you need to grab a brother or sister and come to this altar. Maybe you simply need to get on your face right where you're at. God's Word tells us that if we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us. Sin has its power in darkness. Sin has its power in secrecy. Whenever we confess our sin, there is no longer any power that sin has over us. Jesus died to free us from the bondage of sin, from the penalty of sin. Let us realize that this morning. God, may you speak to our hearts as we worship you this morning. We ask all these things in Jesus' name.